We want to tell you about our friend Heidi. She's an amazing artist and designer, and she is the person who's designed our new logo. It's amazing, and every day we notice another detail we'd somehow missed before. You can also employ her services if you so wish, because she can do you a fantastic portrait of your dog or cat. Just send us some photos of your pet, and she'll put her own special talents to work, creating a work of art that is both unique and special to you and your special friend. But, <laughs> these are no ordinary portraits. No, no, no. She makes them into characters that accentuate their personality. She's done some themed as pirates, hillbillies, theatre ushers, old ladies and gentlemen, pilots. She even made one into Godzilla. You could even have one done of your pet as a mascot for your favourite ball team. Of course, if you just want a normal portrait, she can do that too. We really recommend that you go along to her website or Instagram page to see more of her work. Her website is www.angelbot3d, that's A-N-G-E-L-B-O-T-3-D.com. And her Instagram is at angelbot3d. You won't be disappointed. Oh, and incidentally, this is not a paid advertisement. It's a recommendation for a friend who's really talented. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful Stories podcast. Now, please welcome, all the way from their front living room, your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful Stories podcast. It amazes me that we're on... 43. Are you going to say hello to them? Oh, hi. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Sorry, I was losing track for a second. You're losing your memory with age. Oh, kiss my butt. (laughs) Done that too many times already today. You you better keep doing it. (laughs) So, guys, we've got a treat for you today. We have a chap with us who is a cryptid researcher here in the UK. This is an interview that we recorded with him earlier on this week. So please sit back, relax and enjoy. Andy McGrath is a cryptozoology enthusiast with over 25 years of research and obsession about the unknown creatures living right under our noses here on this tiny island in the North Atlantic. Author of Beasts of Britain and speaker at CryptidCon International Cryptozoology Conference and others, he's also currently working on his own TV series under the same name, Beasts of Britain. Whilst continuing his passion for writing about cryptids and out-of-place animals in other parts of the world, his new title, Beasts of North America, is planned for release in 2019. Please welcome to the show, Andy McGrath. Hello, hi. Thank you for having me both. Happy to be here. Pleasure's all ours. So we're really interested to speak to you because obviously you've covered some quite interesting beasts in your book and I tend to find that a lot of the things that we hear about tend to be things across the water. So it's nice to hear somebody bring into light the animals and different beasts, if you like, that may be found here within the UK. Well, no, I mean, absolutely. That's a, one of the main reasons that I started it, actually, was because I've, I've been into this so long. And when I decided I was going to write about it, I thought, well, nobody really ever looks at our country, the United Kingdom. We've got the rich history of cryptid sightings, if you like, or a lot of folklore and things like uh, werewolves and, and things like that, black shook, demon dogs. But what I was interested in more, more than that was looking for uh, modern sightings of these creatures and said, well, look, if we can find some modern sightings, maybe we can put ourselves back on the map and say, this is an interesting place to investigate as well. And, and that's exactly what happened. There were, there were so many things that I discovered just by researching what we could have here in the British Isles. 
So Andy, before we get started, I'd just like to make one thing clear for our international listeners. A lot of time when people look at Great Britain, they actually call it England, when in reality we've got Scotland up in the north, Wales out on the west, and yeah. the rest of it being England. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was one of the things about it. So, I mean, being, um, I'm not a true Welshman, I suppose, in the way that the Welsh would define it. I grew up in Wales, I was born there, but I don't have any ethnic Welsh blood so to speak, but I actually have Irish and English and, and the rest of it. And, uh, you know, same aisle, but you do get to, used to hearing your um, to hearing your country referred to as uh, Wales, England. It's lovely to be here in Wales, England, and etc. And that's fine. I think the English have, um, they, they've, they've earned their reputation as the, the sort of the primary place that's referred to when you think of the country. They did, after all, take over you know, uh, a third of the known world surface, and that's fine. <laughs> I'd rather not take responsibility for that myself personally as a Welsh person. <laughs> so I don't mind if people call it England because that means we weren't involved. Um, <laughs> it's fine for me. Uh, but it's, it's one of those interesting things. I was just up in Scotland last weekend, actually, when we, when we spoke, Shelley, and um, you know, what you realise being in Wales, and, and I've lived in England now for 10 years or, or going to Ireland or um Scotland, especially, they are we are very distinct peoples, ethnic peoples of this island, and even the little parts of the island we all inhabit have their own sort of environmental characteristics to them as well, which seems to have been shaped by the kinds of people that live there, or, or vice versa. That we've been shaped by those um, environmental surroundings that we're in. And I, I, the Welsh, for example, you know, it always rains where we where we are, doesn't it? And um, you're just used to that, and when it rains here in England, which is, it does, of course, but it's it's not as common as it is in Wales. I just go out in a normal coat for a walk without an umbrella because it just doesn't seem like anything to me. And people are like, where's your umbrella? Where's, why haven't you got your hood up? But I'm just like, it's not really rain. It's just an intense shower. <laughs> yeah. I think Bella's got used to rain since she's been living here. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to. You really have to. The first time I ever came to this country... Where was the place we went where they had all the carnival, like the, the rides and what, flambards or whatever? Yeah, in Helston in Cornwall. And we're walking around and it's raining and nobody has an umbrella except for me. And <laughs> I thought, well, why doesn't anybody use umbrellas? And you went into that whole thing about how you hate umbrellas and all that. But yeah, but yeah I've, in the time I've been in this country, I've seen more rain than in my whole life. In Wales, especially. Um, the, the worst place I ever went for rain, actually, Bella, was Ireland. My first trip to Ireland, I got off the airport. And growing up in Wales, of course, used to a good bit of rain. Spent a lot of time in, in West Wales and in the valley and all those other places where it's nice and rainy. So I get off the plane in Ireland and the rain is hitting us directly sideways. It was horizontal rain. It was completely sideways. And this wind almost blew us off the front of the... Um, uh, at the airport, sort of, um, uh, you know, the front there, as you come out to get your taxi or whatever. Mm. And a friend pulled up and she said, Oh, you know, turned out nice again in a jokey kind of Irish way. And you could feel the damp coming up through the walls. There was moss growing on everything. And I thought, Oh, my goodness, you know, these guys, they've really got it wet. It makes it's us a hearty Irish. bunch, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It really does. And we're never disappointed. I, I, I consider this to be a dry, sunny place. Sorry, in England, a dry, sunny part of the country. That's my view. Well, you're in on the East Coast anyway, so you get a lot more dry than what we do. 
But I think that's what makes this country nice and green anyway. I think that would miss the mm. would miss the rain if it wasn't here. Yes. You mentioned earlier, quite rightly so, that when I initially spoke to you to set up this interview, you were actually on the banks of Loch Ness. And now I know that you'd rushed up there to investigate a sighting that had been reported. Uh, Can yeah. you tell us any more about that? Yeah, well, actually, when I spoke to you, I was um, up in the mountain uh, above Loch Ness on the Alt Macreesh Walk, and I probably sounded a bit puffy because I just walked up. I don't know what the elevation was, but everything was on sort of, you know, 95 degrees. And uh, just walked up to the top and I was overlooking Loch Ness from that mountain as we we spoke. And I went up there to the mouth of the River Oich in Fort Augustus to investigate a sighting that was made by um, quite a successful military historian, an author called Ricky Phillips or Ricky D. Phillips. I think he, he goes under... And he also does a, a little work there on, I think, one of the tourist buses. And he'd come up, and his tourists had gone had gone off on the um, on the Loch Ness cruise. And the Caledonian Canal is right there, and you've got the Loch Ness cruise boat parked, and it, it goes off into the loch from there for you know, a big trip. So all his tourists had jumped onto the the boat and gone on their trip, and he was waiting around for them. It's about an hour. Now he went around just to the the left of the head of the loch there, where you have the River Oich coming into the into the loch, and he was taking some photos on Instagram. Apparently he was taking them on Instagram because his phone is full up of pictures for his own his own projects, and he snapped what appeared to be a long neck with a sort of a sharp beaky kind of head on top of it, and maybe a slight hump behind it, sticking out of the water. Now he said it was dark grey, around rugby ballish kind of shaped head with a sort of a, a high ridges over the eyes. I've seen a picture in the paper actually, and that it seemed to have a bit of a frill going down its neck. Now, the picture it's it's very dark. You can't really make out what's there. There are some details. We've lightened it. I could make out maybe a bit of an eye. But there's no guarantee that it is what it is. At the moment, I'm just mainly looking at the the character of the individual. I can't quite understand why somebody in his position would hoax him. He already seems to be quite fed up with the attention, you know, and most people, I think, once they they reveal some sighting or picture they have, it doesn't take very long before they're tired of the negative attention or people like me, you know, researchers calling you all the time to ask questions. Yeah. I think we spoke several times while I was at the lock about, am I in the location now? Am I in the location now? I sort of tweeted him for pictures from the bridge to the, the, the river. Which one is it in? And he told me. And of course, on our little forums, I've got another forum called Nessian Friends for Lake Monsters and as others like the Zombie Plesiosaur Society and, and Steve Feltham's page as well. The, the guy who's been up at Loch Ness for over 25 years. Everybody, of course, is tearing it to pieces in the sense of intricately looking at all of the details. So it's interesting. I think he's credible, but he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have the negative, so to speak. He took it on Instagram, immediately pinched and zoomed and, you know, and, and sent it. So there's no metadata, you know, there's nothing to substantiate it. There's no background. It's mm. hard. But this is this is what somebody who was not expecting to capture a lake monster and doesn't get involved in this business would be doing. Yes. They wouldn't be saying, oh, I better get my metadata sorted out and make sure the background is fine. And <laughs> it was just an accident, you know, yeah. and we can't view those people like that. Yes, he could be faking. I don't think he is. He seems to be pretty certain about what he saw. And that was enough for me anyway to get up there at least for three days and just have a poke about 
which I did, um, and successfully. <laughs> but that's normally the way it goes anyway. But at least you got boots on the ground. There's a lot of people that do sort of armchair investigations, aren't there? At least you got yeah. boots on the ground and you got straight up there. Yeah, and I got a feeling for the area as well. I mean, I stayed there um, I stayed there quite late into the evening on quite a number of nights from the point where the, the light was going uh, until it was very, very dark and kind of just sat there on the banks nice and quiet. You know, it's it's one of those things you, you have to do it. But I always think about Loch Ness. Um, there's people that live there 50, 60 years and are, are on the water who never see it. And then, you know, every year, seven or eight or nine, or is it now 13 tourists last year, 2018, claim to have seen something. And a lot of head and neck sightings too, like this one that Ricky Phillips had, and a lot more as well. It seems to be those who aren't looking, you know, seem to find it. And my explanation for that personally uh, when you're looking for an animal like uh, Bigfoot or big cats or whatever, is looking looks like hunting. And I think most animals are aware of hunting-like behavior. So when you're, you're seeking, maybe that's off-putting. I don't know. That's mm. just my excuse for not finding anything. So have you always had a fascination with cryptid or did something happen to you that made you want to investigate and research them? Just the normal stuff. I mean, I'm 42 years old, so, you know, person of my age, it's the Patterson Gimlin footage, um, the Robert Rhines um, uh, exploration of, of Loch Ness you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, that Nessie had neck that he got underwater, all, the, all those great bits of footage that came out in with the In Search of programs with um, Leonard Nimoy, you know, awesome things or Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious um, That was the one. That, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers was the oh, one. Oh, it was... Yeah, I had the other yeah, one. It was um, it was. I was more interested in um, the unusual animals and, and things like that. Mysterious world. That's right. But world of strange powers. That was interesting too. I was never really paranormally interested in things. I'm still not. I tend to focus on animals mm-hmm. or what I think are animals. So regarding Nessie, then, if there is such a creature, whether you call it a sea or river monster or whatever, what do you think it could be? So my opinion right now falls into the the unpopular style of opinion and i i think it's a, a a type of plesiosaur of some kind it's not the only sighting that we have in the british isles of a, a lake monster or a sea monster there's there's plenty actually all over the country and all around the coast that have been going on for hundreds of years and still are reported very recently they generally tend to fall into this type of animal now i know that's not popular the pervading paradigm says these creatures died out, so they can't still be around. But just because it seems like they died out, it doesn't mean we can ignore the explanations that people are given the descriptions. Mm. I don't know any. I don't know of any giant type of eel that can raise its neck four or five feet out of the water. I don't know any seal that has a neck like that or humps on its back. Um, Could be an anaconda, <laughs> one of those huge. But, still, <laughs> but they can't do that either, and they would not survive in Scottish waters. They would die very quickly, actually, that kind of animal, because it's so cold. And the loch is um, up to 750 feet deep in places. It's, it was actually quite mild when I was there this time of year, and uh, I think it hit minus one once or twice. They said there should be about two feet of snow by now. It's a, it's a cold area, even in the summer. Mm. Couldn't support an exotic snake of any kind whatsoever. Yeah, We went to Lake Windermere a couple of years ago, mm. and I know there's been sightings. Are these yes. sightings more prevalent than at Loch Ness? Do you hear more about them? Or Although, uh, before you answer that, I've just got to say one thing. You didn't tell me anything about Loch Ness monster sightings at Lake Windermere. Well, it's and not it, Loch Ness. It's, it's, is it Bowness, Andy? Bowness-y. Okay, well, 
I never would have got on a boat that you were <laughs> driving if I'd have heard anything about that. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to, um, I did a little, uh, there's a little chapter in my book about um, Bonasi, and I, I did a, a little um, expedition there last April. We did, we filmed like a little teaser trailer style uh, mock pilot, the TV series that I, I, I'm still trying to pitch and still trying to sell. Um, and there were, there have been a lot of sightings there more or less since 2006, they really picked up the sightings and, uh, there were some, there's been a few photographed ones. There were the, there was the Tom Pickles sighting in 2011, mm-hmm. which is you know, a series of humps in the water. And that was uh, him and a uh, work colleague were kayaking when they saw that. Um, so it was about I think, three to four car lengths long. Um, there's been lots of sightings, but the ever awesome photograph sighting was by I think her name was Ellie Williams who worked for Autographer magazine in London and she popped up to Windermere to take sort of seasonal photos throughout the day and she had a time-lapse camera once every minute it took a photo throughout the entire day so she put it next to the lake she went away she came back the next day took it away and there was this big sharp hump with a long neck which is in 2014 and she said you know it's far too big to be a swan uh, it couldn't be a prank because nobody could have put it there because I've got a photo every minute. For every minute, you know, I'm yeah. capturing. And there was no other activity other than the creature appeared and the, and the photo was gone and the next one. And it looks like, you know, like a Nessie, like a, a humped creature with a big long neck. Now, there were two uh, girls and two guys, or two couples that rented one of those little red boats, red and white boats that you rented. I rented when I was there to get out onto the lake. You know, those ones that mm-hmm. feel like they're going to swamp every time a boat passes. Yeah. <laughs> And um, they were—you have to get perpendicular to those waves. That's the key, isn't it? Yeah, and, um, yeah, but you don't really realize it till you've been nearly sunk a few times. And so, um, anyway, they were coming on the lake one day. I think this is might be um, might be four years ago. Now. I, I'm not, not quite sure. I don't have that sight in front of me, but I remember listening to it on um, on YouTube. And she said it started to really rain. It was very sort of misty and heavy, and so they kind of stopped the boat and hid underneath the canopy for a few minutes just to let it pass mm-hmm. when suddenly this 30 foot long creature that was incredibly long like a snake a bit thick and a very dark green brown came up beside the boat and swam right past them she could have touched it with her hand right. and then disappeared and there's other sightings in um what is, what's the other uh, like uh, sorry i have that in front of me too don't have a great memory uh, okay so that's um Bassenthwaite lake there's been sightings and photos there in the 70s and, and all the other connected waters too. Now, most of the sightings there, just at the side point in um, in Windermere, are near the River Rothay, which is in the north there. And I think there's a, a trout farm halfway up. Most of the Loch Ness sightings that aren't mid-loch are all near river mouths as well. So all the villages with the river mouths, they have the most sightings. And my theory is, is that it's it's good fishing. You know, the fish come out from the river into the deep water, they're vulnerable. Um, there's lots of you know, nutrients at the river mouths. So it's a greater food source. Just a theory. So what are some other types of creatures that you've investigated in the UK or that you're interested in? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it, in the book, there's, there's a whole bunch of things to look at. And primarily it's... Um, they can see monsters, British Bigfoot, uh, things Dogman or uh, the chapter is actually called Dogman Rebranding the Werewolf. You know, so there's, there's a thing on, on sightings like that. Uh, big cats, little people, uh, out of place animals. But one of the very interesting ones about 
the dog man or the werewolf I recently uh, looked into was uh, I actually went there was a, a werewolf sighting in old Camberwell Cemetery, which is it's in South London. Mm. It's a spooky. <laughs> I went there, took a bunch of pictures. It's a spooky old place. I just put a blog up about it actually yesterday, and it's uh, it, it, there was a sighting there in in 1996. Now the the, the graveyard actually was um, I think it was built in 1856, and it's got about 300,000 bodies there. And as you walk into the graveyard and you're going into the deep parts. Um, there's a forest that's grown up around a lot of these graves and they're covered in, in moss and trees and um, they just look like the forest has become part of the graveyard. And it's really, really kind of a spooky place. And Campbell was a bit dicey anyway. So Yeah, my mum's from feel... here there. <laughs> oh, is she? So you yeah. know anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, um, you know, it can be, I mean, these days anyway, it used to be like that. And there's still lots of nice parts of it, but it can be dicey enough anyway. <laughs> And um, yeah, so I was. I went down to the graveyard to check out this sighting. Now, the, the original sighting happened in 1996 in October, and the man was en route to see a friend. Decided to take a shortcut to Camberwell Old Cemetery to save time, when something hugely strong grabs him by the arm and smashes him into the ground. He looks up to see a large creature, dark fur and a head like a German Shepherd, looking directly at him, slobbering and growling, sniffing his body up and down. And then, just as it starts, as quick as it starts, he sprints off on its hind legs, back legs, and um, he doesn't see it again. Now, Jeez. this is really curious. A really curious aspect to this sighting is the witness believed he was spared because he suffers from a disease that dogs can smell. Ah, really? Yes. And he said that. That's, no, no, that's something called, um, I, I would say that's um, it's a mundane detail in the report. You don't really need to know that, but it's something that validates that report to me because somebody was making something up. That's not really what they would think to say. Seems like a mundane detail. Yes. You know, but this disease that dogs can smell, I think that's why it left me alone. Wow. So that's a weird one. And it's followed up in 2004 by an Irish lady who moved to the area and, and a friend, 11.30 at night. They're walking past uh, the graveyard, Underhill Road, on the cemetery side of the road. And suddenly, a large tree in the corner of the cemetery is shaking incredibly hard. This is something really powerful, shaking it with all its might. She heard something that sounded a bit like growling, you know, and, and her thing. And she said there was a really sinister feeling, and she never walked past the road ever again. And she didn't see anything, but I don't know particularly what can shake a tree um, that we have in our sort of wildlife. That, um, that's so going to growl, just, yeah, exactly. It's going to growl, and it can actually shake a, you know, a whole tree. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's a follow-up. It, it, I would say that's um, a visual and audio sighting of a kind, but we don't know if it was the same thing or not. Do you remember the movie American Werewolf in London? Yes. I yes, wonder absolutely. how much. I wonder how many sort of sightings or whatever that popped up around that time when that movie was popular. Well, I've actually never found a London sighting from around that time. Actually, and I've looked for it, and the, the same thing occurred to me. Well, how about? sightings that occurred around the time that maybe something that happened around the time The Howling came out, the original yep. movie <laughs> early 80s, great movie by the way, one and two at least anyway, yeah yeah they were um, but we have werewolf legends that go back hundreds and hundreds of years and these days of course with the popularity of the American 
Dogman, it seems to have, there's a resurgence, not necessarily a resurgence, because I'd say the sightings are very few and far between, but there seems to be more attention that's being paid to it. Now, personally, for me, it's a difficult one, you know, at least with something like Bigfoot, I can say, okay, well, we have the wood woes in our history, the hairy man of the forest. We have lots of depictions on churches and tapestries and things like that. And that could be a type of gigantopithecus or descendant of some kind that some people think it could still be here and, and avoided attention. But what animal could a, a bipedal canine be? I can't find it in the fossil record. I don't know what it is. People say paranormal, but I just think it's something we don't know about. Well, they're discovering things all the time, aren't they? They are. They are. And sure enough, like, you know, it's a big ask to say to people, there could be uh, werewolves here and we, we just never knew about it. Or there could be a British Bigfoot and we just never discovered it. And it sounds, when you're in a city like I am or, or you are, it sounds like an implausible thing. Until you get out there in the countryside and see that we're really underpopulated, uh, our countryside anyway, and that there's, there's nobody around most of the time, anywhere. And when I was in Scotland, I, I know in the summer it's a... It's a common walking path, I didn't see anybody for the four hours that I was hiking this Alp Macriche path in the hill. I didn't hear a single animal. I didn't hear a bird tweet, nothing. Just these big, dense pine trees up on the hill going through these very dark forests. And as I was coming down, and, I, and I'm not saying this is a sighting at all, but I'm, this is just how your mind can play tricks on you, I think, sometimes. Um, as I was coming back down the path, I circled and come back down to some deep, dark forest. I was taking a picture of some waterfall. I thought I saw somebody duck behind a tree at the top of this big hill. It was a millisecond. I don't really know if it happened or if it didn't happen. You know, I'm up there looking for monsters, and if I think I'm going to see something yeah. caught in my eye, it makes sense. It might be my mind. But I felt a bit funny after that. I thought, okay, look, you've just freaked yourself out. You know, you're all alone in this forest. Millisecond, you thought you saw something. And now you've told yourself, you know, it's possible. It's plausible. You investigate these things. What are you going to do if you're in this situation for real by yourself or one of these creatures? Do you, do you take um, anything with you to protect that. you, by the way, in those sort of situations? No. I do normally, when I go out, I do normally go with other individuals and I think that was just such a common walking path I thought well let's just go out but there were many times in parts of the forest I thought there's a lot of big cat sightings around actually and to be honest with you I don't believe that I'm out there looking for a Bigfoot I'm going to get attacked by one but I think the big cat issue is is serious and it might only be a matter of time before one of these does attack somebody you know, it does happen in places where they're common in other parts of the world. And that's really what I'm mostly looking out for. Can I see any big cat signs? Can I hear any sort of stalking or creeping? I wouldn't hear one anyway if it wanted to sneak up on you. I was just going to say when I was coming back down after this imaginary sighting, when I was coming back downhill, then I started hearing sort of, you know, little twig snapping and rustling in the trees and, and things like this. But again, my mind was then focused on that. I was hyper aware and vigilant. And maybe I'm just, you know, animals live in the forest. We hear animals move, yeah, right? Yeah, You mentioned big cats. That's one of my big fears. I do have a little bit of a phobia of big cats. Little cats I'm allergic to, so I hate their guts anyway. But big cats I do have a fear of. I don't know why. I think they're just, they are just killing machines, aren't they? They're, just, they're made for it. <laughs> they, they are made for it. And, um, you know, just it's a predator. It's an actual predator. Yeah. So... Some other animals. I mean, you know, people get killed by cows every year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they get trampled. 
when they get angry or they get afraid of you walking. I never walk through a field with any cows in, not ever, not for a shortcut. I don't, I wouldn't even skirt the edge of the field. I'm staying out of any fields with cows because they're dangerous. But they're not going to come after me because they want to eat me. That's a different thing altogether. And um, I, I think that's that's the major thing. Now, with big cats, I think it's it's a legitimate fear, phobia that you have. Um, I'm afraid of bears. And although there aren't any here, as far as we know, um, I do think that's a legitimate, helpful phobia <laughs> yeah. uh, to be afraid of them. But we did have, um, there's a blog I'm writing at the moment about big cats and um, I was going to try and do a map but there's thousands and thousands of sightings I thought don't bother just do a blog soon and there's something in the book about it too that just utilizes all of the um, all of the sightings people have personally given you and I had nine of the really good ones I really liked and one of them was in Ruspa which is in um, West Sussex it's not far from here actually and I was contacted by this lady. She's a, she's a horse rider, horse breeder. And she picks up a hay consignment from a farm, a local farm up there. And what happens is, you know, you've got on the couch, you just drive in, you pop your hay on the wagon and nobody's there. And you leave. It's just like a yard, basically. So she drove in one night at 9.30, 27th of November, 2017. And she's got a friend, full beams, you know, on the Land Rover. And she gets out, she gets the hay. And as she's coming back to the car, her and her friend see this big cat or big black cat and she said it was about the size of a great dane oh, much hell no. much heavier built definitely male she saw it close enough to see that it had male genitalia and she said when it turned i could see his body was around four foot long his tail was around three foot long tail wasn't straight and almost touched the ground even though it curved at the end classic like um leopard like, look yeah. thickness of the tail was approximately thick around as her wrist and his legs were well stocky Thick or good boned, as we'd say in horse terms. That's mm. what she said, sturdy looking legs, but very sort of mobile. Uh, ears were also strange, not pointed, but round. So that's that's a panther, you know, yeah. like a leopard. And that's um, probably. And she said it was, uh, she even saw it lick its face. It was that far away, maybe like a bus distance away, double decker bus distance away. And it just looked at them, walked towards them, and just slinked off into the bush and was gone. You wouldn't have been able to see my male genitalia, let me tell you. God, I'd have been gone. <laughs> it, I, I, you know, shrinkage. Uh, yeah, tell me about it. Uh, <laughs> there you go. I mean, people haven't. When she contacted me, she said, somebody told me to contact you to ask you if there's been an escape from a zoo. So she clearly was yes. certain of what she saw. She thought it belonged in a zoo. On top of that, she she rides horses, she breeds horses. She's aware of animal sizes. She's got a good judgment for size. And it's a it's a perfect description, really. Um, and that's it. There's, that's not only that. When they're all over the country all the time. And this is because of this Dangerous Wild Animals Act. I was going to say, 1970-something, wasn't it? 76 or 7, I think. Right. Over there. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, right there. So what do you think that... That for people the other side of the water, that act was brought into place because there was a kind of a trend, wasn't there, of, of people buying exotic animals, big cats, etc., and then keeping them as pets. And they either weren't keeping them humanely, for want of a better word, or they were actually, in some circumstances, actually getting out of the enclosures that they were kept in, and, and it became a, a public concern. Well, it's something, some 
places, you know, you have people walking them down the road and things like that. And I, I've even, it's not illegal in Ireland. I've even heard tales in Ireland where you can buy tiger cubs and this and that. And, and, and there's other people walking their tigers down country lanes and things. And although that's an extreme case, you know, it shows exactly what the situation probably was before we brought this law in. It wasn't just for big cats, but now obviously you have to register locally and they, they keep a register of you. You know, that this person has a cobra, that person has a a crocodile, this person has a tiger, and you need special conditions to keep them in, special enclosures. And I'm just guessing it was very expensive. And a lot of people said, let's, you know, just let them go. They probably live out in the countryside for a few years and die. But of course, they, things like leopards, I say panthers, but I mean melanistic leopards, um, and mountain lions, cougars, pumas, whatever you want to call them, they're perfectly adept to this kind of environment. Anyway, the thing about Britain is, there's so much wild food out there, so yeah. much wild food. And I actually believe that's the reason nobody's being attacked. Well, that was going to be one of my questions, was to ask you if you've actually had any reports of, I know you mentioned the chap in Camberwell who was attacked by the like dogman type figure, yeah. but have you had any other reports of anyone that's been attacked by big cats or anything else? No, actually, and um, I think that's very interesting. Now, with the, the Bigfoot phenomenon, that I, I'm doing a five-part series at the moment. I've done the first two. The first part was called Bluff Charge and Intimidation. So what we've had here over many years with this possible British Bigfoot or Woodwose, whatever you want to call it, is this ape-like uh, situation where the animal's angry and has bluff charged somebody. Some people have seen them, visually seen them bluff charging, or you know, they've been they've heard this massive commotion in the woods that they're walking in and branches breaking and snapping and growling and howling and things like that. I mean it was a great example of that actually. One example, like if you know that there are many, it's in nineteen eighty six and a man and his wife they're driving past the ancient ruins of Charlie Castle in Staffordshire, England. They're forced to break to avoid this huge stag crossing the road followed by what they said looked like a large chimpanzee on two legs, comes bounding after the stag, halfway across the road, looks directly at the couple and angrily charges their car, breaking off at the last second. So in a panic, the husband tries to reverse, he stalls the car and uh, leaves them stranded briefly at the road. And over the next 20 seconds, this huge chimp keeps charging their car before you know bounding off in the direction of the stag again. And there's lots of... You know, there's lots of sightings like that where the creature has, has come after them. Uh, there was one in the 80s again, and there are more recent ones, but this one's significant because in this place called Ivy Den Hackenthorpe, Sheffield, there's several children are playing in the woods. They're chased away by a six to seven foot tall dark figure with bright red eyes. It's running at the side of the stream about 20 feet away from them. The creature jumps across the stream and the children run. Now, what the interesting aspect of this, what happens is, is one of the children falls while running only to see that the creature ceased chasing him. It's just watching him a little distance away. So it's, it's a bluff charge. It's chasing mm. them away. It's not actually after them in any way whatsoever. It's just, you know, get off my land kind of thing, you know? And it probably would have been quite covetous over that land because obviously in the 80s, Sheffield was bustling, wasn't it, with its uh, big steel trade? And so it had very sort of industrialised areas and the sort of areas of woodland, etc., around Sheffield were obviously shrinking back because of the amount of industrial work going on there at the time. I imagine so. I mean, Hackensorp and Sheffield, let's just have a look at it. I'm sure it's very different now to what it used to be. Most of our industries is completely dead, isn't it? It looks like a reasonably green kind of place. 
there's you know the usual woods and fields skirting a large town, a large-ish town. Most of the country looks that way. You know, you're on your train or you're on your, mm. going up the motorway and you look out. A lot of people, when they come here, they're very surprised to see it's green as far as the eye can see. But what they don't actually think about is that's, that's just as far as they can see from the motorway. If you go further, it just goes on forever and ever. It's yeah. a good land. You know, it's a, I did this, um, and I'm sorry to, to over-talk here, actually, but um, just to mention this really, really quickly, uh, I did this study called What's With The Habitude? And it was basically about, you know, not proving that there's a Bigfoot here or anything, but could there be? Because people were saying, well, there's no habitat. And what I found was this great, this great study, and it was in 2012. And it was called the National UK National Ecosystem Assessment. It's it's a government study, and they were surprised to discover that only 6.8% of the UK's total land area could be classified as urban, figure inclusive of rural development of roads. And when they broke that figure down amongst the four primary nations that make up the UK, it was even worse. So you know, it was a 10.6% of England was urban. Uh, 1.9% of Scotland, 3.6% of Northern Ireland, and 4.1% of Wales. This is like a whopping 93% of the UK total. It's not urban. Yeah. And then even 54% of the land in the towns and cities was green space. Well, if you think about it, I've seen these programs on TV where they they show those monkeys that now can live in the city with the people and they somehow adapt. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And there's loads of them. They had one on the other week about, I think it was like an otter family or something. And they would come up onto uh-huh. the, you know, they were trying to, they, they weren't afraid of people. No, um, of course. But here, like you're saying, there's so much open land where nobody ever even goes. So how do you even know what's there and what isn't? That's it. I mean, uh, nobody's walking there essentially and um it, I, not to, to overlay with the point but even when i was in uh, fort augustus in loch ness recently i was looking into loch ness and you're always shocked by the lack of lights surrounding the loch there's not much habitations around there and i asked uh, the landlady from the bnb what the population of fort augustus was and she said we're the biggest town outside of inverness we have 600 residents here and of course, the most it increases, you know, during the summer when the, the, the tourism is, is high. But generally speaking, there's 600 people who live in the biggest town around that area, and that's the most popular um, lake monster spot in Scotland. And yet, there's was it 31? I think it's 31,460 lochs and lochens in Scotland. Many of them join to the sea, so it's kind of like, well, this is just the one main area everybody goes. 250, 300,000 people a year visited. And actually, yet, there's only seven or eight sightings or sometimes one or two sightings a year, which as a coach is really shy. If you've got 250,000 people training their eyes on the lock, you know, for months and months every year, and only five or six people, seven or eight, or this year, 13 people claim to see something even, just claim, that's not a lot. You'd expect a lot of people looking to be seeing a lot more. Yeah, yeah. And that to me is actually more proof of the Loch Ness Monster, then, then uh, there's more proof that people aren't making things up as much because otherwise you'd be expecting a lot more mis, uh, misidentifications to be coming forward. Aren't they seen also in like Loch Oich, Loch Lochie and Less so, but they are seen that way. So one of the things I did when I was there, I walked from Loch Ness uh, 
uh, I wanted to walk to Loch Oich, and I walked along the Caledonian Canal on the left, River Oich on the right, and it's you know it's just separated by road. I actually managed to make it all the way down to Loch Kytra, which is on the way. They have been seen in Loch Oich infrequently, and Loch Lochy too. Uh, and my theory was that sometimes the creatures go out that way to the sea. It's it's long, it's drawn out. There's some shallow bits in the rivers. I think they would have to get out of one or two points. It's not a solid theory, to be honest with you, but I think it's it's plausible. Yeah, I have been seen in Loch Hill and in, in, um, Loch Linia, the, the areas that join into the sea, these sea lochs. So there seems to be a route of some kind, just we don't really know what it is. Not that long ago, they used to say that there was no such thing as the giant squid. And they, you know, some people were like, no, 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 we saw it, we know, you know, and people were like, no, that can't be, that's not real. And then come to find out, it is. Hang on a second. <laughs> and what do you do now, Bella, um, if you see a giant squid in the museum, do you go, oh my goodness, a giant squid, or just go, oh, giant squid? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was the kraken. That was the kraken. For thousands of years or hundreds of years, that was the kraken. Oh, the kraken got us. They pulled the boat under the kraken. And suddenly, yeah. oh, come on, sailor's tales, the kraken, sure, the kraken. Oh, oh, look, kraken, squid, whatever. I think perhaps, perhaps in the future, you know, we'll be looking at one of those dead Bigfoot exhibits in the museum or maybe, you know, a dead sea monster exhibit of some kind. I'm saying, oh, yeah, that's... Um, so and so, so and so, whatever the, the name we're using for it is now, you know, that's the that's, that's the, the McGrath monster. That's the McGrath monster. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how they discredited and vilified him and ran him out of town? Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In your oh. book, you mention about flying creatures that yes. you've investigated. Can you elaborate any more on those? Yes, uh, a little bit. I can, I can definitely talk about those. Now, that to me was the biggest surprise that there could be unidentified flying creature. Now, the one that really got me the most was tales of pterosaur-like creatures, actual descriptions of pterosaurs. Now, there's there's a few. You know, there's definitely uh, a few around that, that made the um, made the rounds. But my favourite one was uh, came in 2017 as well, I think in August, and Shropshire, in a place called Whitchurch, uh, where a lady that's next to a, a bird reserve, and she lives next to it, and she's very used to seeing the different types of birds and animals out there, heard a, a strange screech coming from the woods and saw two large pterosaur-like creatures, she called them pterodactyls, flying out, big leathery wings, you know, dark, sort of grey-brown kind of colour, and a very, very odd call, flew straight past her, over her head and off into the woods. A few days later, her son comes in and said he, said he saw a strange bird with bat wings fly over the house. And it's just you know, stuff like that that comes on. We have, of course, the Owl Man. Everybody knows about the Owl Man of Mornin. And you probably hear that. And those two girls that first saw it, creatures sometimes emits a, a strange a screeching or hissing noise or an electrical crackling noise. Five to six foot tall, grey-brown owl with pincer-like claws. It's, it's um, strange. A bat beast of Kent, and that's, I think, from the 60s. 14 teenage friends walking home from pod in the county of Kent see a mysterious flickering light descend into a nearby field in Sandley Park, and something makes its way to the edge of the trees, and they notice this figure which was five feet tall, big webbed feet, wings on its back, and no head. Looked like a headless bat. Wow. It's wow. amazing. One of my favorite ones is the Batman of Sight Hill Cemetery. I, I don't know the date on this one, actually. I don't have it in front of me, but I do know it by memory. And basically, somebody is driving home at four in the morning. I don't know if they're a shift worker or whatever's happened. They've recently moved into this 
this neighborhood in Glasgow near Sidon Hill Cemetery, you take a wrong turn. So they sort of pull out and, and turn around. They see a large, dark, bipedal figure dart out of the cemetery. And look as it's sort of moving down the street, and it looks like a tall man, all in black. It seems like it's wearing a, a cowl or something like that. Anyway, this long black cloak. So he gets curious, and the, the driver drives towards it, and it starts running down the street. And he's driving at 30 miles per hour, and it's ahead of him, moving fast. Eventually, it stops at the end of the road next to this, this large wall, and he goes towards it, and it leaps 20 feet into the air over the wall and disappears. So there's things like this, strange sightings, very, very strange things, and, and more come in all the time. With some of them, it's hard to say what the person was seeing, and with others, they seem to be too explicit to believe, you know, with the current paradigm of what we, we think the world is and what should be in it. I know that you've had quite a bit of contact with Lauren Coleman, who obviously is probably one of the most famous cryptozoologists in the world. I know that he advised on the Mothman movie. Do you know of any similar sort of Mothman stories in the UK? Or I don't. I mean, I considered the Owlman to be a type of Mothman for a while, really, yeah. because of, of this shape and I, you know, the glowing red eyes that it's said to have. And I always thought that this headlessness or this head in the middle of the chest kind of aspect of the Mothman was just to do with the the blackness of the creature, you know, next to you couldn't make out the beak or you couldn't make out the mouth as, as much. I haven't really looked into a lot. A lot of my friends uh, really looked into it. I know that uh, Seth Breedler, who's a friend of mine, he did uh, The Mothman of Point Pleasant, one of his, isn't it? Right. And um, one of the models done by Jean St. John, who does the um, cryptid, repl- uh, cryptid Replica Company, who's a great, great artist, was used in that I was in the Cryptozoological Museum when I went there. So I spoke at Lauren's conference last year, um, along with Jeff Meldrum and Todd Dissatel and um, a bunch of other awesome people. And that was um, Joseph Tro. That was, that was a great thing to meet him. He was a very, very, very lovely guy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he gets a lot of attention, but he's, he was super lovely and very, very humble. And <laughs> we were having a funny little conversation recently because I kept calling him in like little tweets, the undisputed king of Kong, which sounds <laughs> kind of cool, right? But Kong over there means like penis or large penis. I was just, just going to say it sounded a bit pornographic. To there you go. <laughs> and I asked him, I, I've been thinking of starting the podcast. I'm not sure if I'll do it, but I'm thinking of it. And I asked him if uh, he would come on if I did it. And he said, I'll come on, a, uh, <laughs> come on on one condition that you stop calling the undisputed king of Kong. <laughs> and he gave me you'll, have this some, you'll have to get some really nice 70s music to go along with that podcast. I know. <laughs> you know, some sort of <laughs> fun guitar, for sure. Definitely needed, for sure. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, they're all lovely. And what actually happens when you get out there and you meet some of these guys who've managed to make a career out of it. You see that they've gone through a lot of work. Well, you see one, it's not easy to make any kind of career out of it financially because, um, you know, it's like a calling of passion in a way. And, um, there's not a lot of money in it. And two, you see that they're actually kind of like a community. So people generally help. They help you, you know, even if they're gently pointing you in the right direction through a private message, which I get now and again saying, I just read your article on this and really, you know, a couple of miles out on that one you know why don't you read this and and have a think about what you've written (laughs) (laughs) it happens yeah you know yeah no but i mean i I think that in the main people 
in this sort of whole field. And it crosses over into this, the paranormal stuff as well. I think people tend to be quite respectful of each other. I think everyone has a passion to, those people that are serious about it anyway, have a passion to want to learn more and, and want to know more. And everyone's after the same thing. And yeah, so I, I think there does seem to be quite a bit of cooperation around Definitely. those things i've got two curveballs to throw you before we go oh, great. i just wanted okay. to, to ask you okay so the first thing would be if you could be the researcher who finds any type of cryptid what mm. would be the one that you would most want your name attached to it's a hard one really i i think i i think normally i would say like a lake monster any lake monster not necessarily necessarily <laughs> but um or necessarily, but I did some kind of like one somewhere. I was waiting Sorry, for I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not that one particularly because it's so maligned. That one, you know, anybody who claims anything, it's almost like um, I know we're not supposed to swear so much, but you said it's fine here. It's almost like a cryptozoological clusterfuck. That area, you know, yeah. it's just it's so many people have gone up there and looked for, it and it's got such. A reputation even i mean think of rob ryan's and um who was his cameraman's name he was a lawyer and a patent clerk and he invented all these things and then i forget the guy who went up with him who invented all of that camera and sonar technology and actually the camera that photographed the nuclear explosion right he invented this stuff and they went to parliament and they presented their evidence and they were just discredited and and made fun of and these were super intelligent guys who had mm. a cv for invention and and for discovery longer in your arm they were so they had so much credibility and yet still you know it didn't matter it did not matter and i think that will be the case for a long time i would prefer to discover something for practicality's sake that's not supposed to be here but that we know about like the big cats if i could discover that they are here in a certain number and somehow you know be integral in um in setting up monitoring of their populations and um some kind of study of that where we can find where they are we are looking for them we should be able to find where they are because we can find other cats in in countries we know they're in we're just not looking um that would be the one for me i'd like that say okay he discovered that they were actually big cats or he implemented the procedure with which we started finding them and monitoring them and and making sure their population was okay. Uh, you've actually partly answered my next question because ah. the second part of the curveball was that if you were to find a creature, obviously there's always a risk that there may be other parties, trophy hunters, etc., yeah. who would be quickly on the scene and human nature, they're going to try and grab it for themselves. So how would you protect that particular animal or, or species? Hey, that's like Harry and the Hendersons. Well, exactly. I, I, know, I know it's a family movie, but it's, that's exactly the case because they find something that actually, as far as they were concerned, was, was something unique and special and needed to be protected. And they realized that it had a personality and it had benefits, really, not only to its own kind, but to maybe yeah. us to learn about it. And yet there's people after it. So, yeah. Have you got anything in place so that if you should happen to find something, have you got people that you can call on? It's not particularly cool on this point, but um, I do have in the last chapter of my book, Preparation for Preservation, there I talk about a conversation I had with Cole Sucre about a proposal I had called the Unknown Species Act, which was essentially that any unknown or dis discovered unknown or out of place animal will automatically be given protection, not only in itself, but in its habitat. And there would be a duty of candor of a legal duty on persons who experience or witness it to report it to the relevant agency. I wanted to table yeah. that and put it to Parliament. And he very kindly said, well, first of all, the issue you've got, Andrew, is that 
you can't put in place a protection for something that's not yet known to exist. Fair enough. And, you know, two, it's um, when you have to, to go to Parliament, you know, to get a, a motion tabled, it takes so long, you have to have so many signatures, and then, you know, you wait every day to get called forward, and maybe they do it, maybe they don't. So it, it's not really in a good place right now. But I, I would try to establish existence first. Now, with the big cats, you know, we don't have a lot of guns or hunters here. I think the likelihood of harm coming to them is, is quite low. And since we're not discovering them by ourselves anyway, it's unlikely that people are going to be able to go out there as trophy hunters and just find them. Things like Nessie or the British Bigfoot or, or whatever else, I think you know, those creatures have managed to keep themselves hidden this whole time anyway. I don't think somebody discovering and proving that they're there is suddenly going to endanger them in any way. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to disagree with you, but there are a lot of really ignorant people in the world. Oh, you know, are. that, I mean, you know, there are movies about things like this. Look at E.T. That obviously is a bit different, but in a sense, it's not. Because as oh, soon the as there's any sort of tension, people from everywhere come and. Maybe people in the UK would be more protective, but, you know, I just, I mean, I'm American and there's some crazy Americans in the world, you know, well, that... That I understand. That bit's not going out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I understand from American perspective, since you have, um, you have arms to begin with and you have you know, regular hunting seasons and people can go out and hunt anyway as a natural part of life there that such creatures could be more at risk if that was the case, yeah. if their habitat, particular habitat was discovered. But, you know, even to own a gun here, it's very difficult. And after have to either keep it in an armory or if you're a farmer, you get to keep it under special conditions, a certain type of gun. These aren't the kind of guns you could go out with, really, and hunt a Bigfoot with or you know, gun down a lake monster, if you could even get that close to one. And also, I think, in this country, in this world, as things stand, the environmental movement is so strong anyway that any discovery would immediately have a protected habitat without saying it would happen overnight. They wouldn't say, well, let's kill one and find it and cut it open because the backlash would be too strong. I think there would be some sort of monitoring of population and maybe thereafter in the future, more scientific study. I don't think it's going to happen personally. I think, let's say from the Woodrow's point of view, from the British Bigfoot point of view, if these creatures actually are here, like people are saying who are describing them, have managed to stay away from us in our modern, you know, and our modern ability to monitor and search for things so effectively, so wholly almost, I just don't think we're going to find them. I have no hope whatsoever of, of Nessie or Bigfoot becoming creatures in our, you know, in our one day or part of our of known flora and fauna. Just don't think it's going to happen. I think they're going to going to maintain the distance. They're going to stay as the number one and two hide and seek champions of the world. <laughs> Andy, thank you very much for your time here today. We've thank come you. to the end of the show. Yeah, I loved it. Thank you. No, no, that's all right. Thank you very much for coming on. Where can people learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Best place to go to is Facebook. To be honest, if you go to facebook.com forward slash beasts of, you'll find me there. I'm under Twitter, Beasts of Britain, Tumblr, Instagram. Beasts of Britain, same thing. Pinterest as well, if you like. I've got a book online on Amazon called Beasts of Britain. You can find it there. At the end of January, there's going to be a whole second version, a whole 
entirely new version. So there'll be more chapters, there'll be more pictures, have a different cover, and of course, piece of Britain map, which will be coming out at the end of January 2, and where you can buy that will be listed on my Facebook page as well. And of course, later on this year, you've got the Beasts of North America that you're going to be Yes, reaching. working hard on. <laughs> So I hope to have that. I hope to have it done later in the year. I'll probably try and release it for Christmas. Actually, I've got so much to get through, and of course, the, the TV thing. I'm still working hard on that. If I don't get a buyer by the middle of the year, I'm going to film it myself. I'm going to get some friends in, and we'll do the series ourselves, and then put it on Amazon and Vimeo and and everything else. So it's going to happen regardless. Just uh, the method as to how that happens is still up in the air. Well, we wish you all the luck in the world with that. Thank yep, you. and when you do, oh. and when you do get rich and famous, uh, we'll be calling you back. And... Yes, <laughs> please do. When you do release those things, if you want to call us back or you know get in touch, obviously we'd be more than happy to have you on the show again, and you can tell us about where you are with that as well. I'd love to come back on, and it's so nice. I, I've recently been in the US, Bella, so I've, I've got a very deep fondness for Americans at the moment, and of course, Shelley, <laughs> you know, uh, my homeland calling to me through your voice there um it's, yep. it's very warm and, and very welcoming as well i'm with you brother <laughs> thank you buddy thank you okay you look after yourself all the best thank you, you very too. much have an awesome one bye-bye bye. take care bye-bye well i don't think i'm gonna want to go swimming for a while unless it's in a swimming pool and i certainly don't want to go in the woods well, we went in the woods today to take the dog for a walk. We had our dog, our trusty little <laughs> wimpy uh, guard dog. Girly puppy. Yeah, she's like princess. That's what we should have named her. A poofy little princess. But anyway, did you like it? I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was, was really good. Check Andy McGrath out. Check out his stuff. Make sure you get that Beast of Britain book and the map that he's got coming out so that you can learn all about the things that are going on around the UK. And until next time, please stay weird, Weird, wacky, wacky and and wonderful. wonderful. Bye.